Hey, I'm Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It, a podcast created to talk about the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features a discussion between myself and a creator about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations reveal different ways that each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. Today, we are massively honored to be joined by Nick Lowe. To quote his bio, Nick Lowe has made his mark as a producer of Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, The Pretenders, The Damned, a songwriter of at least three songs you know by heart, a short-lived career as a pop star, and a lengthy term as a musician's musician. But in his current second act as a silver-haired, tender-hearted, but sharp-tongued singer-songwriter, he has no equal. To quote me, Craig Finn, he's one of the greatest songwriters of all time, an absolute hero, and one of the very few people that has figured out how to age completely gracefully in this awful business of rock and roll. He's on tour this summer, backed by Los Trace Jackets, headlining and opening some shows for his longtime friend and collaborator, Elvis Costello. I'm beyond grateful that he's come here to talk to me today. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with The way that I remember it Thanks for being here, Nick. Oh, great pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me and for that fantastic introduction. <laughs> well, I start all these the same way. That's disappointing. <laughs> well, we'll see where it goes from there. <laughs> no, no, I mean, th- this part, this part. The intro was, was honest from the heart. Um, do you consider yourself to have a good memory? In the long term, I think, it's my short-term memory started to get a bit shot now. Do you think that your memory is helpful as a songwriter? Well, not in my case, I don't think it is particularly, um, uh, because most of the songs I I write are not autobiographical. uh, I make up characters and uh, and have them do the heavy lifting for me. But but I know know what it feels like to have your heart broken or to have uh, been lied to or indeed have lied to others. I'm very very keen on the the sort of hapless character who, you know, is not, not exactly nasty, but is a bit useless, you know. So that character inhabits quite a lot of my songs. And I can remember quite well how, um, you know, how that feels. Yeah, I, you know, I was talking to another uh, a writer on this, and he wrote a lot of sort of science fiction and fantasy stuff. And his answer was that, you know, when it came time to populate the details, he used his memory, but he obviously doesn't have experience, you know, slaying dragons or whatever. And um, I related to that. And I kind of wondered if you'd say that, because I feel that you're, especially in your recent songs, that there's a timelessness to it that might not lend itself to pure autobiography. Do you think that's the case? I, yes. I, I, it's kind of you to say it's, it's, it, it's timeless, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yes, I, I think uh, I think you're probably right. The reason I say recent is I'm, you know, I look back at some of the older songs. I'm thinking about Milk and Alcohol, which you wrote for Dr. Feelgood. I love the song Sound of Broken Glass, American Squirm. I'm pretty sure those are all based on things that happened, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, I suppose I suppose they are. Yeah, Milk and Alcohol was uh, 
definitely was. And that wasn't really my idea. They, they, uh, the, the feel, feel goods got me out of bed. Actually, they, they were recording it. They had an the idea for this for the song, and they were recording it in a studio down the road. And they got me out of bed late one night and said, "Can you come and write some lyrics for us?" But they were already on it. You know, they were talking about our experience going to see John Lee Hooker in L.A. on our first visit there. And so it, was that written like almost on the spot then? Yes, it was. Yeah. And how about like, I love the sound of broken glass. Cause I, as a, I understand that was about sort of a hotel trashing thing on a rock pile tour. Was that written quickly after the event? I, I'm not sure whether that was about anything actually. Uh, I, I think that was, that's that particular track was one of the, um, probably the only occasion where I had an idea for a sort of groove, little outline of something, and went into the studio with a couple of guys and showed it to them. We worked up the idea into a, into a record. I've tried to do it thousands of times <laughs> since, uh, with, with never quite the success. It, it's, I, I, generally, when I go into the studio, I have a rock-solid song that stands every chance of sounding something like a record when I come out at the end of the day, when I've finished, leave the sure. studio. How about American Squirm? I believe was a kind of a, inspired by Elvis Costello's appearance on SNL. Oh yes, that, um, that, that, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That was. And was it written quickly after that? Do you it remember? was that, that night. Yes, that night. Cause it, we were so, we thought they, they, they were so pleased with themselves, you know, those, those folks up there that, that we thought they, they'd think it was pretty cool, you know, that, that Elvis had done that, you know. But they were furious, absolutely furious. And, and Elvis, not unreasonably, was saying, I thought the program was called Saturday Night Live, you know. <laughs> Don't you want something like this? Surely this is gold, which, of course... It's it's one of the shows that people actually do remember, but um, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah it's they were ve- they were they were quite sort of pleased with themselves. As I say, sort of. So we were, and, so and you remember you those those days that we were all about poking a poking a stick in places that the stick hadn't been poked before. It's amazing that you. I mean that you that you kind of captured it almost in a journalistic sense then in a in a song so so quickly thereafter. Um, but speak, speaking of memory, like and one of the great opening lines, I remember the night the kid cut off his right arm in a bid to save a bit of power. He's got 50,000 watts. I know you were electrocuted at one point in a show. Is this any way related to that? <laughs> no, it wasn't actually. It was, uh, um, I, had a, I had a very, uh, I had a job shortly after I produced the first album I, I um, produced, which was uh, Graham Parker and the Rumors first album. To my uh, horror, they, I mean, I, I, I was grateful, really, because I was out of work, you know, but they hired me to, to be their tour manager, uh, a job for which I am not very well suited. But I could get them out of bed, you know, and I could get them, you know, into the van on time and everything, but the, my accounts and things were, were a disaster. But, but we were, the, the job I was employed to tour manage them for was opening for Thin Lizzy, and they were really great really great and they had this song the boys are back in town which i heard all the time and they were sound checking or when they were doing their shows it's got a, a feel of the boys are back in town so it goes sure. ha, ha, has because i was just walk, wandering around the backstage areas you know and started humming this thing and i came up with this 
my own version of the boys are back in town, you know. And the kid was the nickname of Brian Robertson, who was the one of the guitar players in in uh, in Thin Lizzy. He was always complaining about um, about stuff, and uh, as if he was having his arms torn off. I think someone mentioned so. Anyway, uh, so it was it, it was just a way of getting into the song. That's uh, that's one of my favorite bands, Thin Lizzy. That's a, that's an amazing tidbit to know my own band the hold steady walks on stage oftentimes to that song especially on saturday nights we always just choose it on saturday nights because i think it captures sort of the barnstorming nature of touring better than most any other song the security the security getting up tight you know and the people getting in the stalls and that's really exciting how has touring changed for you since you wrote it? Well, it's not as it's not as rumbustuous as it uh, as it once was. You know, we we especially with Rockpile, we we really the the show was a sort of a, a sort of irritating interruption, uh, you know, <laughs> to the days carrying on, which isn't the case now. You know, to, nowadays it's the it, it's the um, the main the main part of the day, and I, I you know I can't stay up like I used to, sure, uh, and uh, and certainly can't consume the amount of um, booze that we used to put away. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, well, that's that's. <laughs> but I'm yeah, quite nah. I'm quite relieved about that. <laughs> <laughs> Back, backing up, do you what what's do you do you know the first kind of music you remember hearing when you were very young? Yes, I think uh, my. Uh, my my mum was a, was a good musician and uh, was rather thwarted. She she probably would have had a career in music. She came from a show business family, sort of vaudeville family, and uh, she she I think she would have had a, a career, but not for the war uh, when she um, she was interrupted, you know, which interrupted her, all that sort of thing. Um, but she was a good musician. I used to sing with her quite a lot. And, uh, and the earliest song I remember really was doing was, um, I was very taken with the music from uh, Hans Christian Andersen, you know, the, the, the movie with Danny Kaye. And there was, yeah. a, I, I, I loved all those songs, the, uh, the, uh, the Emperor's Suit of Clothes and... Uh, um, Anywhere I Wander, I love that song. I still, I still do love them. But there was one called Inchworm, which um, is is a, is a scene where Danny Kaye, who plays Hans Christian Andersen, the uh, celebrated, a wonderful Copenhagen as well. That's another one that was from that. But uh, Danny Kaye plays uh, Hans Christian Andersen. He's um, outside the schoolroom and the kids are reciting their times table. Two and two are four, four and four are eight, eight. And, and he sings this song, Inchworm, 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 measuring the marigolds. And uh, it's a lovely melody. And and he is at one point in the song, he sings it with a counter melody of the kids reciting their, their times tables. And uh, my mum and I used to do this. It was the first time I, I, I was astonished. I remember being surprised and delighted that I... I could do this. I could sing either the kid's part or the Danny Kaye's part against her singing the counter melody. It was sort of a breakthrough to me, <laughs> realizing I could do that and sing, and therefore later on, you'd sing, um, sing harmonies. In other words, sing an, another tune when somebody else, to, to the tune that somebody else is singing and make them create a third sound. 
Does it? Does that music? Do you think that music still informs your work? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think there's something. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've I've had a look elsewhere. You know, but I, I've always been taken with uh, with with lyrics which are very easy to understand. You know, and 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 kind of literate. You know, but I find that that even really uh, really quite funky blues stuff can be extremely literate. You know, in in its own in its own way. But I've always been taken with that in country, for instance. You know, there's no there's no definitive way of, of putting it because when you say literate, you know, because sometimes you know things shouldn't rhyme. You know, sometimes they should rhyme, and sometimes they definitely shouldn't. You know, you get a word that in order to make it literate, you know, it's so it's a complicated it's a complicated process. But I've always been taken with a really good tune and an easy to understand. Uh, lyric, I've I've had a look at the other stuff, you know, the the imagery and the you know, you know demons and wizards and mm-hmm. stuff like that, but it it really doesn't suit me, you know. So I didn't I didn't stay there long. Your sort of process for absorbing music, borrowing things, being influenced by things. I mean, do you have any way of explaining that, or is it just something that happens? Well, it has all been done, you know. It definitely has all been done, and, and when I started. Uh, I started like everybody else. Uh, I copied my heroes. And then when, when I'd rewritten their catalogue, or one hero's catalogue, I'd move on to somebody else and rewrite their catalogue and so on and so forth. Until one day you're working on your latest hero and you find that somebody three heroes ago, a bit that they do, will fit very, very nicely into your latest effort. And maybe two bit, and then the next time there'll be two bits of that person and one bit from the from the first hero, you know, and and until suddenly you're putting together your own recipe and it turns into your own style. But it's all been done before. There's nothing original actually under under the sun, in my view. You know, it's just the just your particular way you put it together. But the the most recent, uh, you know, the actual songwriting process, I've had various theories on it over the years. One was, I used to talk about this, and I still still do, rather creepily, I'm afraid, but I sort of mm-hmm. talk about the bloke, the, the bloke being the sort of artistic part of me, you know, that that isn't there all the time. I'm, normally, I'm the, I'm the sort of rather dull person that's talking to you <laughs> now, you know, but... When the bloke comes around, and you never know when he's going to come, you know, when he can call around and move in for a bit, you know, that's when you write the good, the good stuff. I've known the bloke for quite a long time and been there when he's turned up and shown me a couple of songs. I've known, I've known it, as I say, you know, all, all my life. So I've, I'm quite good at doing an impersonation of the bloke. And uh, and my and the, my songs I write I write impersonating bloke aren't nearly as good, and I know which ones they are, you know, and which ones <laughs> they. Um, but the other the other theory I have is uh, my latest, and I have I have spouted this a few times, so I apologise to your listeners if they've heard this one before. It's as if you're um, in a, in an apartment, and uh, with thin walls, and. Uh, 
And in the apartment next door, they, they, they have their radio tuned permanently to a really cool radio station. You can just hear it coming through the walls all the time. And then one day, you notice that they've started programming on this station, this really great song. It just catches your ear when you're doing the washing up or doing it, it catches your ear. You go, man, that's good. What's, the, what's that? What's, what are they playing there? And it's gone. It's, fin it's over and finished. But the, the next time it comes on, you never know when it's, when it's going to come through the wall at you. You get prepared. You have a wine glass or something you can hold up to the wall <laughs> and hear it because you think, man, I want to learn this. This is a really a real cracker. And you just get the first bit of the verse and then it's gone. You know? And then the next time you're ready then for, for whenever they play it. And the next time you get a bit of the chorus and they... So it's more, I, I think, when the older I get, it's much more of a listening thing. I used to be in a hurry when I was a kid. You know, I'd get a good idea and I'd finish it at myself. <laughs> Fatal. <laughs> and, and whenever I listen to my old songs, very often, um, although people love them, you know, but, I, but when I listen to them, you know, I think, oh, man, why did you do that, you know, and... That's not how it goes, you know. It's and and oh, and you've done it again. Why did you repeat it? That awful bit, you know. But that's what people like about people's early stuff, you know. They love this exuberance, and when you get older, it gets a bit more staid, you know. I think, and I try and not let that happen, but um, but but it's it's sort of inevitable. You get much more, but but I find it's much more of a listening thing. It's almost like it's it's been written already and all you have to do is just listen very carefully and, and so is is editing a part of that or is it is it more just listening oh editing goes on all the time i think i think actually when i've recorded my songs that's just the first stage you know that's the it's, it's almost immediately redundant that version of it is um because i think if the song is any good you know it will continue evolving and, and, and being tweaked. And sometimes I don't even know I'm doing it. When, whenever, on the rare occasions I hear uh, one of my records on, on the radio, you know, in, in London, I'm always quite surprised about how different I do it, I do it now when I haven't... Some, some, some of them I consciously do write new verses and lines for, but some of them I, I'm not even uh, aware that I'm doing it messing around with it i saw you know i've seen the um the guy from los straight say that you encouraged them to not always be faithful to or not to be too faithful to your originals yeah definitely yes that didn't last very long at all it was sweet of them to when we first joined up that they'd done their best to <laughs> to to uh impersonate you know to uh, replicate the records you know but i said oh no let's not do that you know, just learn the chords up and the key that they're in and we'll go from there. So it's important to you to, that they evolve in some way? Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. It makes it much more fun. I think, I think just a straight reading of, of things. I mean, there's one or two of them that I do which are pretty much set now, I think. I think they probably mm -hmm. have, have stuck. I've got two versions of Cruel To Be Kind, for instance. I do one with the band, which is in the original key and is, uh, sounds pretty much like the record. But when I do solo shows, I pitch it in a lower key. It's got a, a different, just a different mood about it. I mean, it's still sort of up, upbeat, you know, but it has a diff definitely a different mood. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. 
DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. So yeah, this is a good good transition, which I love. Um, at the end of Bringley Schwartz for the last album, I believe that you recorded with them. You write the song "What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding," which has become pretty much a modern standard. I mean, it's like a hymn because of the world we live in. It, it very often seems like the right song for the moment. Uh, Elvis Costello made it a hit. Many other people have performed it. Recorded, including Curtis Steiger's on the Bodyguard soundtrack, which sold a massive amount of records and was undoubtedly convenient, if not life-changing. This summer, you're playing dates with Elvis Costello, who you also produced a number of records for. Did you feel when you wrote and recorded that song that it was destined for greatness, or did you feel it was another song in the catalog? Oh, I thought it was another song in the catalog, really. But the the uh, again the, um, the 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 one thing that I I uh, said about it on, on occasions before is that it was the first going back to what i was saying about rewriting your heroes uh, i can remember the day i wrote that that song and i can remember being astonished that it was i'd had an original idea it was actually an original idea and uh, i couldn't believe it i really couldn't believe it and i thought well it's a bit of a mouthful you know what's so funny about peace love understanding but it's a pretty good thing you know and it 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 started out as as a sort of a joke of i was trying to uh, the idea of it was that it was a because it was the early 70s and a lot of people including myself who'd had a look at sort of hippydom you know had kind of seen through it you know or got you know just thought oh man you know this is this is ridiculous <laughs> we get back to how things were and uh, so there were people, a lot of people were sort of leaving the, uh, the cult, you know, pretty quickly. And it was supposed to be, uh, you know, an old uh, hippie seeing all his sort of followers, you know, splitting, you know, saying, uh, well, you think I'm a joke now, you know, but when you, when you look at it, you know, what is so funny about peace, love and understanding? You know, when, you, when you ask yourself that question, you know, and, um, and as, it, as it went on, I, I thought, wait a minute, you know, this is actually really pretty good, this, you know. So, so I stripped all that stuff out and I just made, uh, made the, um, the, the verses very sort of, not exactly bland, but I, I thought, just let the title do the work for you, you know, and it had a good tune and don't get in the way of it, you know, don't, no, never mind about that. And, and when I think back now to how I was back then, you know, I was a, basically was an idiot, and to and for, and to have a sophisticated thought like that at, at that age and that time in my life, I, it's hard for me to believe that I could have been so clever as to think 
don't get in the way of this kid, you know. <laughs> Maybe it was an early visit from the bloke, who knows? <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, and then I, it struck me that, that you know, that was on the pretty, 74, I believe, was the year. It was, you know, that the 60s had just come to a close, big picture. So we're a few years onward when Elvis Costello records it and you're producing it. It feels angrier the second when he records it. Is that is that due to the distance from the '60s, the the starting of the punk thing? It, uh, did you feel any differently when when he recorded it? Did you think this now this is a hit, or was it another song in his record? I thought it was. I thought it was fantastic. He he um, he was a big fan of, of Brinsley Schwartz, you know that, and we used to see him at our shows all the time, especially when we played up in Liverpool. And in fact, at Liverpool, when we were playing the Cavern Club there uh, before it closed. That's where I first met him in about 1972. And when I started producing him, I'd done his first album when I was, I was sort of the, the producer in the early sense of the word. You know, I, I was sort of, okay, kid, you do this today, you know, and, and uh, no, not like that, you know, like this. But that went out of the window pretty soon. And when, by the time we got on to the second album, it was much more, good morning, Mr. Costello, how would you like to do things <laughs> now? And... Um, it was he who actually suggested doing it. Uh, and up to that time, he hadn't done any covers at all. You know, it wasn't me saying, uh, Elvis, I really think you ought to do this, uh, one of my songs, you know. <laughs> he, uh, he suggested it. And when they started doing it, uh, you know, it sounded fantastic. And it, it, that song should have gone in the dustbin of history, really, with, uh, along with the other... Brinsley Schwartz repertoire, songs in the Brinsley Schwartz repertoire. Well, "Cruel to Be Kind" was that was there. Of course, that one came out of the uh, out of the bin. But um, but peace, love, understanding is definitely down to Elvis putting the hurt on it. You know, like that. Sure. You know, speaking of Brin Brinsley Schwartz, there I read in the Will Birch book. Uh, you know, the, the very hyped 1970 Fillmore East concert doesn't quite go as planned. And how much does that play into what happens next? Playing in pubs, playing quietly, no over-the-top guitar solos, sort of rejecting hype. Does the experience of that Fillmore East show lead to, lead to the pub rock thing? I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. It was... Um, after, after that, it was such a disaster. It was a very big news at the time, you know. It was a complete disaster. Everything went wrong. I mean, it's a fantastic story. Also, um, as as uh, recorded by Will Birch in one of his other books, um, No Sleep Till Candy. But he tells the whole story uh, about it. And it was very big news at the time. We we should have been completely washed up and finished at, at a stroke after that. Such was the uh, vitriol and bile that poured on our head, and quite rightly too, you know. And um, really, but for some reason, we didn't split up. We stayed together because it was so traumatic, this experience. We, and we, we'd all been through it together. So we didn't, you know, we didn't quit. And also, whilst the, in the build-up to this, we had these quite big paying gigs come in, you know, in, in anticipation that it was all going to go right. So we honoured those because we wanted to wanted the fee. So we stayed together, and when all, when the shows all dried up and everything, all we had to do was rehearse. We had no work or anything, but we had this big house we were rented to live in, and we started to rehearse. And we thought, well, at least we when we do get get some gigs, well, at least we'll be actually good. And then 
one night, our manager went to the Marquee Club to see, uh, to see somebody or other, and he heard the opening act, who was an American band called Eggs Over Easy, and he thought they were really good. And he went to meet them afterwards, and he invited them back to our house. And we spent the night in our rehearsal room with these guys, and they were so much better musicians than we were, but they were playing in a style, in a way that we were trying to learn how to do. So we became really friendly with these guys, and they told us that they'd been brought over to the UK by Chaz Chandler, you know, who brought Jimi Hendrix over, and uh, to make an album with him. And things had gone wrong. He, uh, Chaz Chandler used to produce and manage Slade, you know, and he had his hands full with Slade at the time. They were very big in the UK then. And so they were just hanging around in their own house that they had in North London. They walked into their local pub, which is a huge gin palace on the corner and said, they had, used to have jazz in there. On the, and um, they said, look, we're a band. Can you give us your worst night, you know, and we'll come down and play for free, you know. And then if it works, you can hire us. And they weren't too keen on this. They said, oh, we don't have, have pop groups in here, you know. But they said, well, honestly, we play really quiet. You know, well, you'll hardly know. Anyway, they went down there and they started doing, and they built up, they built, they built up this following, which we hadn't heard about. But anyway, he went up there. And by the time we got up there to see them, they had a, this fantastic crowd was turning up to see them. And they were playing these great, this mixture of great covers, really fan, bold covers, you know, like songs from the charts, you know, that week. And uh, plus great blues things, a bit like NRBQ were doing, I suppose, you know. And they're plus their own fantastic originals. And we thought, man, there we go. That's what we need to do. And so when they went back to the States, we moved into the, their gin palace and one or two others, which we'd found. And we, and we moved into a lot of their show too. We pinched a lot of their act. In the strange way that the Brits have of bigging up a, an underdog, you know, we'd been completely trashed. We'd done, it seemed like we'd done enough time in, the, in hell, you know. <laughs> it wasn't that bad, you know, I don't want to overstate it. But suddenly the fact that we had been so uncool, such an uncool prospect, suddenly when we started doing this pub thing, the fact that we had been so uncalled suddenly made us cool in a strange way. And people started flocking to see us. And um, that was the... That was the yeah. It was a very very big deal. It it's it's um it it made a mark on me the the the, the whole experience in terms of my relationship with the music business and everything. Well, it strikes me. I mean, you know, it, it's been suggested that pub rock, uh, yourself, Doctor Feelgood, etc., leads to punk rock. So, you know, you might draw a line from the Fillmore East show to punk rock. And, uh, well, Will, Will Birch <laughs> certainly attempts to do that. <laughs> it's a good book. Um, but Peace, Love, and Understanding is one of the only many, uh, only one of the many songs that have been, of yours that have been covered. Uh, Solomon Burke, Diana Ross, Johnny Cash, Rod Stewart, and more have covered your songs. Does someone covering your song change your relationship to it? Does it take it out of your hands in some way? Well, it's, it, it's, it's something I've, you know, I've been really lucky to have people people cover my songs, and uh, um, it's it's terrific when they when they do it. But I think because of my own what I said to you earlier on about when I record my my songs, that that is just the start of me 
changing them, you know, because I've got such a fluid relationship with most of my own tunes, I don't really take any notice of how uh, anybody else does it. I'm just delighted that they've done it at all. I suppose artistically, I, I prefer it when people take it and do what they want with it. Because that's what I do when, I, when I, I'm always very anxious to do covers as well. I don't want to be seen as someone who just does their own tunes, which I think can be kind of tiresome, you know, after, uh, in, in a way. I think that it's healthy to do cover songs as well. And, uh, and whenever I find a, a, a cover that, for, for whatever reason it is, that, that says, do me, I will work away at it until I sort of think that I've written it, that it's one of my songs. I feel so at home with it. And that might involve me writing new lines for it, you know, changing the melody and whatever. I always credit the original writer. I wouldn't dream of suddenly saying, oh, wait a minute, I've written half of this now. You know, no, 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 no. It's always the original writer because it's, in, it's their inspiration and everything. But I'll change it. And it's the same way as when I write a song of my own. I fiddle around and fiddle around there until I don't... I've, I've managed to erase all my... what I think is my bits. And, it's, and I feel like I'm singing someone else's song, like a cover song that I'm really familiar with. So it's, a, it, it's the same process, but uh, in, sort of in, re, in reverse. So, so when someone does one of my songs and really... It takes total liberties with it. I think I, t I think that's a huge compliment, and uh, I'm, I'm really pleased. Who was it? Um, Oscar Hammerstein, or one, one of the one of the you know great songwriters from yesteryear. You know, used to fly into a rage, but apparently, if anybody did it any strayed in any way from the way he used to do his his, his songs. I, you know, I know you've been written in Nashville writers' rooms. Would you feel comfortable completely as a behind-the-scenes songwriter, or would you always feel the need to perform your own songs? I think I would always need to to perform them. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a it's a fat it's fascinating experience to stand up there and sing something that you've come up with and see its reaction on, on, to people. You know, it it's unbelievable. It, it, even going back to peace, love, and understanding, that it, it's quite a thought that, well, you know, if you, if you apply it to someone like Paul Simon, you know, Bridge Over Troubled Water or Carol, Carol King, uh, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? There was a time when those two writers were the only people in the world who'd ever heard those songs, which now are known by everyone. And on, on the whilst I would dream of comparing myself to those two, you know, I have my own uh, bridge of <laughs> water, I suppose, is peace, love, and understanding. You know, in, in that, it's a song that at one time, I was the only person in the world who'd ever heard it. And when you stand up on a stage and sing it to an audience, you know, it is, it is some, sometimes if you're in the mood, you know, it can be quite moving, you know, to realize that. I, I had that when I went and saw the Springsteen on Broadway and he played Born to Run, you know, by himself. And I thought... Someone had to sit down and write that. And you remind yourself of that every once in a while. And it's a really profound, <laughs> moving experience that, that, that it didn't exist. And someone conjured it out of the air. Yeah, 
It, it is. It's. Uh, it is quite a thought. You. You know that it doesn't happen very often. You know, normally I'm just grateful. You know, I'm grateful for, for the work. Really. <laughs> sure. Well, your your bio suggests that your second act begins with the Impossible Bird in '94, and that's probably right. But on September 11, 2001, the same day Bob Dylan released Love and Theft and Slayer released God Hates Us All, uh, you released The Convincer. I can think of very few albums that are spoken so reverently among songwriters I know. And actually, the two that follow At My Age and The Old Magic are always mentioned in the same breath. There's an incredibly soulful elegance to this record, which is undeniable. You became a little bit more of a crooner, but you also seem to cater yourself into the very rare stratosphere of rock and roll musicians that get better with age, age gracefully, hold a guitar in a rock club, and don't come off as a creep. Was this your intention going into the record, or was it a natural development, like the music you just wanted to make then? Well, it, it, it's kind of you to say to say that I've, I've sort of achieved something like that, you know. Um, but uh, yes, it, it, I did. I did sort of um, give it give it some thought. You know, I became aware uh, sometime in the, I suppose, the early '80s, that my my uh, shtick was becoming tiresome, both both to, to to my audience that I'd managed to attract. And to me, more especially. Also, my my, uh, you know, my personal life was was a bit of a disaster as well. You know, with drink and drugs and all the rest of the cli- whole cliche. You know, in that area, I was I was very unhappy with the records I was making and the record companies I was with and all the all all that sort of thing. And I thought, well, you've got to just pull over now, pal, and have a think. Now, when I did, and I started, my mind started clearing and I, I I took stock you know and I thought well you've done pretty well you've you know done these great records with Elvis and and you've written some pretty good songs even had a couple of hits you know that's that's not bad why is it then that you think that you haven't really done anything really good yet and I, I gave this some thought and I and uh, I came up with this theory that up till now there was in pop up till then rather in pop music there wasn't, you were, you were done, really, by the time you were 30. In fact, if you were 30, you were, that was considered to be really pretty old, you know. And I was, I was, you know, looking at 40 here, you know. And uh, I thought, well, why is that the case in pop music? I mean, there's Frank Sinatra, I suppose, you know, and, and a few others. But why is it that the case in, in pop music, but not in jazz or, or, or blues or, uh, or even country at that time? And I, I thought, well, wait a minute, if you can come up with a way of presenting yourself and writing for yourself, which will make it an advantage to be getting older, not something to hide, it'll be something actually advantageous. People will envy you that you've, uh, that you've got this wealth of experience, you know, and, um, and uh, put it across. And I wanted to record kind of like a jazz artist you know in other words live and quite quiet i've always for for ever since rock pile anyway i've always liked playing quiet you know because i like i'm interested in swing in music which is very unfashionable at the moment but i i think it's so mysterious how two people can play together and and create this mysterious third element and you can't swing when you're loud it's only something really that comes when you when you're quiet you know play quieter that's that's my experience anyway and uh, so so that's 
that's why I, I thought, well, I'll incorporate that, you know, as a, as a swing element in him. There, there's always been a, a great sense of humor in your work, but it seems like those records might be even more self-depreciating. Um, you know, lately I've let things slide, I'm a mess, etc. Do you think that's any part of the appeal? Is it more of an honest accounting of, like, that a lot of songs offer? Well, I think I, I think it probably was, because I uh, always like country uh, music as well, you know, uh, country and western music and but i but i don't want to be some english guy trying to be like they're from nashville so i wanted to i wanted that that subject matter you know and and that sort of sort of style but presented in a without too much of a stretch you know of, of demanding too much from the from the audience i think what, what what what's he doing now you know he's from nashville now or is he uh, what's he doing so I, didn't, I, I wanted to use the elements, you know, of, the, of that style of songwriting, which often deals with uh, people who are, as I've said earlier on, hapless, you know. And, um, but if you can put a bit of humour in it, it somehow makes it sadder, I've, I've found. It somehow makes, you know, somebody who's really trying their best, you know, and, you're, and, they're, right, and they're saying in their song that, I tried to do this, and it's some sort of pathetic attempt to appear like they're like like they're together, you know. But they're obviously they're not. They're clearly not. Their life is in ruins. Somehow that makes it sadder, you know. And it's funny too. Yeah, it's dark. It's very darkly funny. Yeah. So so that I I've tried to put all this together, and and also that's the sort of thing that people who are getting older are interested in, you know, relationships, not not going well and that that kind of thing but i but i still always liked even though i never really liked punk music much apart from one or two exceptions i loved the attitude of it and i've always tried to keep something of that in in what i do you know in that i try not to follow fads you know and try and just do it the way i feel it well related to that do you think about legacy or do you just do you just go to work I, I I don't really think of legacy unless it's a moment like we've just described, you know, with with peace, love, and understanding. You know, when, when you've said that it occurred to you too when you heard Bruce Springsteen do uh, "Born to Run." Uh, with my thing, with with peace, love, and understanding, the thought that that might be around after I've cleared off, you know, is is quite a thought. And if there was one or two others, you know, that would be fantastic. I think probably my 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 catalogue, the way I think about the songs I've written, is probably about how I think about about pop music as a whole, which is that most of it is totally forgettable. But you know, like sort of eighty-five percent, I would say it's all in the ear of the beholder, you know. But eighty-five percent is totally uh, uh, is totally forgettable. But of the other remaining. 15%, let's say, you know, I think probably 10 is pretty good and and 5% is really good. And I think uh, I, th- I think that's how I'd, I'd categorise what the stuff that I, I've done. But but as I say, it's in the all in the ear of the beholder. <laughs> well, I got one more for you, and, and it's that you haven't made a record in a couple of years, and the record industry as a business is in some ways over does that play into it or do you just feel like you've got enough songs or maybe you're working on something right now 
No, I'm not really working on anything right now. I do sort of think it's all all over, really, in terms of uh, of uh, making records. I still I still sort of knock them out, you know, with the straight jacket with the straight jackets. But it's it's really more of a kind of calling card, you know, to say we're, I'm still in business, everybody. Yeah. You know, if you uh, any if you've got a TV show or anything you know, mm-hmm. that you want want me to have a go at, then uh, you know I can still I can still write songs. Uh, and I think about it all the time, but the actual actual making uh, records, I, I'm I'm not really very interested in, in it anymore. I can always be p- persuaded, but it's it's so expensive to make the kind of records that I know how to make now. You know, with real people and uh, you know a real studio and all that. So why no one does it like that anymore? Um, but uh, you you never say never. You never say never. But um, I'm I'm certainly not craving. You know, my, my next release. Well, uh, I'd say we'd we'd love to hear it if it is, but I get it. And um, thank you so much for taking the time, Nick. This has uh, been such a joy for me, and uh, you, you know, you speak amazingly about music, and it's just a pleasure. Uh, well, thanks so much, uh, Craig. I've really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> a huge thanks to Nick Lowe, one of the all-time greats, for joining us here on That's How I Remember It and helping us shine a light on some of his particular magic. I recommend a deep dive on Nick's catalog if you haven't done one lately, and I can safely say that his records sound great in all four seasons. I also recommend the Will Birch biography of Nick, titled Cruel to be Kind. You can catch Nick Lowe on tour this summer, always an amazing show. The dates are at nicklowe.com. Also thanks to Dadgrass for sponsoring this episode. Check out dadgrass.com and use discount code FIN at checkout for a 20% discount. And the biggest thanks to you for listening to this episode. It's been so much fun to put these together. I'm really enjoying all the comments. I'll be on tour behind my album, A Legacy of Rentals, this fall in Europe, the UK, and the USA. Check out the dates at craigfin.net, and hopefully we can see you in person. Until then, see you for the next episode of That's How I Remember It. Stay positive. Stay positive.